Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. It's been a couple weeks since I've been here preaching. I was here last week, but uh, it's been two weeks since I've, or two Sundays since I've preached last. It's been like three weeks total. But it's good to be back. Uh, we got to take a vacation. I want to just finagle my cable here, make it a little bit longer. Um, I was able to get a family vacation. We went to campground in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and got to visit some family while we were down there uh, the week, week before this past week, the week before a week ago Sunday, so whenever that was. Um, but had a great time with family, and, but it's great to be back, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, my name is Michael. I am the lead pastor here, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, hopefully I'll have a chance to do so afterwards. I'll be in the cafe uh, hanging out and saying hi to people. Um, you're here with us as we're in the Gospel of Luke. We're preaching through a series in the Gospel of Luke. Today, the section of text that we're in is where Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, in particular, the destruction of the temple, which would, but that's part of the whole city of Jerusalem that is destroyed. And it's, for us in the modern world, it is really hard to grasp just how significant this event was when it actually came to pass. It is, uh, it, its fulfillment for the Jewish people was cataclysmic. So, This prediction that Jesus made was so controversial at the time that it was used against him in his trial. It was, uh, he was accused of, um, it was a way to gen up accusation and opposition to Jesus amongst the Jewish people. The city itself, with the temple in it, gave God's people hope that God dwelt in their midst So the temple was a representation of God's presence with his people. It was built for that purpose. And the temple was a way of saying, God is here with us. God dwells in our midst. And this building within this capital city was very symbolic for the Jewish people. And it it also symbolized for the people that were there, the Jewish people, under Roman occupation at the time, that God would deliver them. But if the city and the temple would be destroyed... As it was, and Jesus predicted this, it would crush their national identity. It would indicate that they were under God's judgment. So that was a huge thing. And that is exactly what happened. The Jewish people rejected God. They crucified their Messiah. And so God visited his judgment on them. And he destroyed the temple. And he destroyed the whole city. All of this took place about 35, 40 years depending on the crucifixion of Christ, 35, 40 years, something like that, from the day that Jesus made this prediction. So we're in Holy Week. This is the week that Jesus was crucified, a couple of days after this pronouncement. And the things that he predicted came to pass about four decades later. It happened in AD 70 when it came to pass. And it was a devastating and horrific event So Jesus, what we're about to read, Jesus was speaking to a gathering of people who would experience the events he's predicting within their lifetimes. So he's got a group of people here, and he's talking to them. They're walking around the temple. It's like, hey, this temple's going to be destroyed. And he's telling the people, you will 
It's like, this will happen within your lifetime, and that, because that's what did happen. But even still, the, the words that he has have relevance to any faithful Christians living at all in any time. Because the God who authored them, the God who is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he is unchanging and forever. And so even us now, as we live in our own times of cultural upheaval, this, this passage is relevant. It's a long passage. Um, it can be tedious, and we're not going to get into the minutiae, but we are going to spend two weeks on it. So uh, I want to read the first part of it today. Next week, we'll, we'll get to the second part. So two weeks on this. Luke 21. Let's dig in. If you have a Bible, grab it. And we are in Luke chapter 21. I want to just piece this out a little chunk at a time. We'll go through the text at first, and then I'm going to give you a bunch of application at the end. Verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Huge. Huge. Imagine going through a, I don't know, a tour of the White House and somebody saying, hey, there's coming a day when every brick in this building is going to be toppled over. That's a pretty significant announcement, right? So naturally, the people are a little bit freaked out and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? So they're asking a time question. What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? To what question? All right, let's talk about the temple. This is, um, so this is a rendering of, of what the temple, uh, of the whole city of Jerusalem would have looked like. So um, this, is, this is actually a model that's in the city, but you see like all this back here, that's the city, and then this big thing here was the temple mount. And then this here, that's the temple proper. So you would have the Temple Mount, um, you have the Court of the Gentiles, which would have been, um, you know, out here in this common area. And then inside here, you have, you know, a special place where it was reserved for Jewish men. And then inside the temple, you have the most holy place, which inside you have very symbolic items that are inside that temple. Um, This is just, this is a video, it's just going to play in the background for a couple minutes, um, if it plays. Is it playing? Do I have to push a button to get it to play? Was it playing? Here we go. Okay. So uh, I just downloaded this on the internet this morning. This is a, a rendering of what, what it would have been like in three dimensions to see. I want you to see the magnificence. Look at that hall, like how spectacular this place was. It would have rivaled the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple complex uh, accounted for about one-sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem at the time. So it was huge. So the people gathering there uh, are asking Jesus, okay, when's this going to happen? And how will we know that it's about to take place? What will be a sign that it's about to happen? Now, the rest of Luke 21 is Jesus speaking in response to those questions. When's this going to happen? What will be the sign that it's about to happen? And Jesus' response to those questions in the whole context is about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. 
Now, before we get into the meat of Jesus' response, he begins with some exhortations before he answers the question. All right, so the video is cute. You can, uh, you can download it on Just look up Herod's Temple on YouTube if you want to watch the rest of it. It's like two, three minutes long. And there's some really stunning soundtrack in the background that you're not hearing now. Okay, so here's Jesus' response to the question. And he said to them, See that you are not led astray. There's two exhortations here. The first one, see that you are not led astray. There's number one. What kind of being led astray? Well, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear, so the do not go after them, that's the led astray. Don't be led astray. Don't go after those guys. And when you hear of wars and tumults, here's the next exhortation, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Two exhortations. Don't be led astray. Two, don't be terrified. Don't live in fear of this thing happening. Now, this is really important, so I want to make sure we catch it. Jesus is dropping some massively bad news on them. He's telling them, this thing that is the symbol of your identity, this thing that is a symbol of your hope that God is here with you, that God loves you, God cares for you, God is watching out for you, he is your God, and he is present, he is strong and powerful, that symbol is going to be torn down and demolished. Now, even for Christians who are following Jesus, who, who, who place their hope in him, that's still... That, that's a still a powerful thing in their mind, a powerful symbol. You don't dislodge a symbol of that magnitude so easily in their heart. It can't be displaced. So he's encouraging Christian people, hey, don't be terrified. God is in control of this. So he's telling them when this stuff starts happening, you're going to, that's going to be a time when you're really going to need to trust God. But I'm telling you now in advance what's about to happen, and I want you to be prepared for it. Don't panic. So Jesus then proceeds to answer the question itself, and he's going to give them three major signs of the, the coming of the destruction. Remember they said, what will be the sign? Jesus is going to give them three signs. Then he said to them, first sign, these are, I'll show you in a minute, that they're, they're not quite in sequence, but nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So that's, uh, that's the first sign is wars. Second sign, there will be great earthquakes in various places and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So these are supernatural phenomena, or you know, what we might call an insurance world, like acts of God, you know, just crazy stuff happening in the world that are beyond our control. So I'm just going to call them natural phenomenon, but actually they are uh, supernatural. Now, here's where it's out of sequence. But before all this, so now we're just like, okay, before those things I just said, here's, a, here's the actual, the first one that happens. It's a great persecution. I'll just go ahead and put that there. Persecution. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my, for my sake, my name's sake. So wars will happen. These natural phenomena that will happen in the sky and in the earth, and then there's going to be personal persecution that comes at you. Um, next verse. Now get this. 
This will be your opportunity to bear witness. We'll come back to this. Settle it, therefore, in your minds. So here's a fixed mental orientation. Settle it beforehand. Before it happens. Anticipate it. Be ready for it. Settle it ahead of time in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Your family is going to betray you and turn on you. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now that's weird, because he just said some of you will be put to death. How can he say not a head of your head hair of your head will perish? What he means there is perish is an, is is a word that in that in here it's, it's indicating an ultimate sense. So it's like, even if you die, God will preserve you and carry you into eternity in a, in a blessed state. So you're saved, even though in this life you may die. So you will not perish eternally. And the hair on your head, that, that's a figurative statement referring to, it's like, God has got you. You don't have anything to worry about. By your endurance, that means your perseverance through difficulty, you will gain your lives. Jesus said in other places, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? He's saying here, you're going to not lose your soul because I want to see you through. I want to carry you through, and you're going to endure. It's a promise. I want you to, um, we, we, in, in context, we have to recognize he's talking to them in their time. This is not an exhortation that, is, that, that can be universally applied uh, to everybody, because he's speaking to specific people about a specific event that they had asked him about. And so we see, um, let me put it in a different color. I want you to see the uh, references to the word you. Your minds don't meditate. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. None of your adversaries will be able to stand. Delivered up by your parents and brothers. Some of you, they'll put to death. You'll be hated. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. In this section, there's 15 references to you. He's speaking to them. So these are not things that apply directly to us. They do apply in a different way, and I'll show you that later. But he's talking to them about their circumstances. Now, let's talk about this verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus said, in the midst of suffering and persecution, that will be your opportunity to bear witness. Have you ever prayed that God would give you an opportunity to share Christ with somebody? You're like, Lord, please open a door. Please give me an opportunity to share Christ with someone. And Jesus is telling them here, when Satan turns up the heat, when the authorities are out to get you, when they're seeking to put their hands on you to persecute you, when they drag you before kings and governors, when they try to put you in prison, there's your opportunity. That's your opportunity to share Christ. So sometimes we have a different kind of opportunity. You know, you might, have, you might know of people where, like it says in the book of Acts, somebody came up to the apostles and they fell down at their feet. Lord, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that's, we pray for those. Like, Lord, give me more of them. That's like a, a two-foot putt on a flat green. You just got to line it up and tap it in. It's putt, putt, mini golf. Super easy. Share the gospel. Their heart is ready. God has already done the work. 
That's what Paul calls preaching the gospel in season. God drops these beautiful opportunities right into your lap. However, there are other times, and oftentimes even, people will hate you and smear you and slander you, and that is no less an opportunity to bear witness for Christ. That's preaching the gospel out of season. That's preaching the gospel whenever HR stops by your desk and they say, stop talking about the Bible. We're going to write you up. You're going to be, you're going to be uh, suspended without pay. Whenever they're threatening you and they're screaming at you to shut up about Jesus, that's your opportunity to bear witness. I have a friend that is part of a different church, doesn't live in the city. He has a group chat for Christians at his work. He posted a prayer request in that chat this week about a friend who had commented on a pro-LGBTQ message board in this Christian chat group. And so whenever that message was posted, his friend, who is a solid Christian, responded, it would be great to share the gospel with LGBTQ folks, but we're to love the sinner but not celebrate the sin. And then the pile-on started. Other Christians in the chat group, they jumped in to chide her for being unloving, telling her that's not the way of Jesus, and they even reported her to HR. So HR called her in, and they asked her if she understood how offensive it was what she had posted. And what did she do? She preached the gospel to him. Here's what Jesus has done for me. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and God has been merciful to me. And anyone who follows Jesus by repenting of sin and placing faith in Christ can have eternal life and hope in him. She preached the gospel to him. But they told her that she needed to go back and talk to the people that reported her in the first place, and then HR would follow up with an action plan. Jesus said, when this stuff happens, don't think, okay, this is the time to put my light under a bushel. This is a chance to go and hide, and and in the interest of self-preservation, don't say anything controversial. He says, this is an opportunity to bear witness. It doesn't mean every time things are hard, you have to always say something. Um, He's not mandating that, but he is saying it's an opportunity to bear witness when, even when things are hard, and you might pay a price for it. Should we not expect that as Christians? I can just imagine Jesus saying, when HR calls you in, And they said, do you realize how hateful and hurtful and offensive that was? Telling her, this is your opportunity to bear witness. Praise God for this this woman who did that. Now, all the things that Jesus has been talking about so far is, is the precursor, the beginning of birth pangs that's leading up to the main event. The main event is the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city. And the things that Jesus predicts in these verses He predicted them around AD 33-ish. They were actually fulfilled circa AD 70. So about four decades later is when they actually came to pass. So let's read those verses. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Okay, so we're still talking about um, the destruction of Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's when you know its desolation has come near. Then, then, that's when you run. He told him to. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. 
and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, days of vengeance, we'll get to that in a second, to fulfill all that is written. So this has been prophesied of in the past, in the Old Testament. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. So these things took place in A.D. 70. If you ever study church history, this is a big one. One of the biggest of all. Because this signaled something. This, there was this rebellious faction that had taken over the city. And that faction prompted a response from Rome. And Rome sent a military commander named Titus to besiege the city. And he did so for about five months. And I've got some artistic, this is not photographs, but I have some artistic depictions of what took place. Oh, I I forgot to read verse 24. Let me read this. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, well, I'll mention something about that in a second. So here's an artist's depiction. So you have the Roman armies here kind of overlooking the city, and uh, here's the Temple Mount, and the temple inside, and then the whole city of Jerusalem, and they were trying to break through the outer walls. It took about five months to break through the outer walls. During this siege, the conditions in the city were unthinkable. Um, Things like murder, famine, cannibalism was happening in the city. It's been recorded by history. Here's another depiction of what it was like inside the city. Uh, not a pleasant scene. Get to, these poor folks uh, getting dangled off the edge of a building. Um, so it was a very brutal, bloody affair whenever this happened. So they, they ended up um, looting the temple, uh, taking all the treasure of the temple out, and they burned the temple, and they took the plunder to Rome. Here's some of the, some of the rubble that is still visible. And literally, the stones were toppled. Um, the the uh, emperor at the time, Caesar at the time, he commanded that the city be completely dismantled. They, he, he wanted, like whenever in the ancient times, whenever you wanted to make an example of a city, this is what you do. You make it look as though no one ever lived there at all. Your, your memory is completely wiped off the face of the earth. And that's what they did. One of these uh, stones... Um, Estimated to weigh about 570 tons. Heavy. That's heavy. The final result. Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, the historic city where David made this city his, his capital, and the temple, the house of God, which was uh, the temple that Solomon built, but David uh, laid the groundwork for that temple to be built that had stood as a monument for God's presence amongst his people for a, um, well, it was a, a thousand years total that had a temple there. There was a first and second temples. That's history. We won't get into that. But this symbol was an old symbol. But these things were destroyed, and it would have been interpreted biblically, according to the Old Testament, as God's judgment on them. And Jesus is indicating to them that God is judging them for rejecting their Messiah. They were covenant breakers. They were faithless people. God sent them their Savior. They rejected him. 
And because they, the, the officials and the authorities at the time wanted to have control over God's people for themselves, they formed an alliance with Rome to betray him, crucify him, and kill him. And of course, God in his sovereignty used that very act of treason against the Most High to bring about salvation for the rest of those who would ever believe, including us. Praise God for that. Verse 22, I read this a moment ago. It says, these are the days of vengeance. That's not Rome's vengeance. It's not Rome's vengeance. This is God's vengeance. This is God's judgment on this nation. And just as Jesus predicted to add insult to injury, Gentiles now trample the city. Do you see that? Um, Oops, let me go back. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Gentiles are infidels. They're unclean. Um, You couldn't share a meal with a Gentile because they were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And this would happen, Jesus predicted it. So what was happening here this, is that the, the Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is now going to be trampled on by these filthy, unclean, defiled Gentiles. And Jesus said this will continue until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Um, I want to skip this quote. So here is the, here's what this looks like today. There's the Temple Mount. We used to have a temple here. What's that thing? Anybody know what it is? It's the Dome of the Rock. It's the oldest uh, Muslim monument that's still standing. It's a Muslim monument. Gentiles. The Temple Mount was literally, and there's no way that somebody could say, ah, you know, Luke wrote this after it happened. Nonsense. Like, these things happened, you know, and we're, Luke wrote his gospel in the first century, and this AD 70 event happened after that. This, these predictions, we are seeing them fulfilled within the history of the church. So the Temple Mount, oldest Muslim monument in the world. So even though this is the nation, like the nation state of Israel now, like the, the, there is a nation, and this is in Jerusalem, even still, you know, you've got the Palestinian and the, and, you know, the Jewish, you know, they share this same plot of land. This is a very holy site. There is this thing, if the Jews try to, try to destroy that in some way, uh, World War III, guaranteed. So this is a very holy site. This is something that stands there, and it, it is like a, a, an ongoing monument to the truthfulness of the word of God and the truthfulness of the words of Christ. Clear, there, nobody would dispute that this book, this gospel of Luke, was uh, nobody would say that was written after this happened. I mean, this, this has happened you know, much more recently. So the Dome of the Rock is this testimony here. Okay, let's uh, move to application. Jesus is talking to specific people about a specific event, and we, we need to be careful about reading ourselves into the text because this was written to us but not about us. This is about them, and Jesus spoke the words to them, but it was written for our benefit and our instruction, and there is application here, but we don't want to just transfer all of what Jesus said to them into our day because people do lots of kooky things with their end times theology when you do, right? So we want to make sure that we're seeing what the Bible says. Nevertheless, God's character never changes. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the same Jesus that stood there and said these words is the Jesus that we sing and pray and worship to every week, all the time, our whole lives. So God wrote these things for our benefit and for our instruction so that we can learn and and, uh, benefit from them and grow. And so in our day, we can see that we are in a time of cultural upheaval, right? There's a national cultural upheaval. There's chaos and confusion. And personally, I don't see any reason to question that this, what we're seeing happen in our day in 2023 as an act of God to either discipline us or judge us for unfaithfulness. I don't see any reason to question that. Now, I'm not a prophet, but um, I think that's, that, that, is, that is my own interpretation. You're, you're free to feel otherwise. But I, I, I think it's a fair conclusion to say we're under God's discipline at least, if not his judgment as a nation, but not just us. It's happening around the world. So in light of this text, I've got two application points. Two application points. The first one, pray for our nation to repent and turn back to God. Pray for our nation to repent and turn back to God. Let me get my qualifications out of the way here. We're not Jerusalem. God did not make a covenant with America. We're not, we're not the same as Old Testament Israel, so we're not God's covenant chosen people. We're, that's, that's not America. Nevertheless, there was a time in our history when America acknowledged God overtly, and the God that we acknowledged was the God of the Bible, and I think the principles that our country was founded upon were principles that are biblical and came from Scripture, and there was an acknowledgement. And I think we, our history isn't perfect, there's a lot of problems there, but I think that we've enjoy, we have enjoyed blessings because of what our forefathers and the founding of our country did. They acknowledge God in the founding of our nation. God deals with nations corporately. God does bless nations that acknowledge him. We see this in scripture. One way that God blesses a nation is to act and move within it, to restrain sin within it, to hold people back from their worst impulses. And one way God judges a nation is to give them over to their sin to remove the restraints so that their sin leads to more sin and increasing magnitude. Let me show you a scripture of this. This is Romans 1, and we see this principle um, explained. This is Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Gave them up, meaning he, he let them have what they wanted. Gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, same word here, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So there's this, there's this rejection of God, an explicit rejection of God, and then God's judgment or God's discipline comes upon people by giving them over to the thing that they want to do. He lets them experience the consequence of their sin, and one of the consequences is a twisted mind, a debased mind, so that they would do what should not be done. 
Sin begets sin. Little sins lead to bigger sins. What kind of sins? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I want to know what that means. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul highlights two things here that invite God's judgment. One, they do them. That's the sin itself. But two, they give approval for the sin. They give approval for the sin. The judgment for sin is more sin. That's how, that's how God typically operates in the world. Sin begets more sin. As sin multiplies, it becomes harder and harder to resist because doing so becomes more costly because sin has become more normalized. Small sin leads to bigger sin. My sin entices you to sin. Your sin entices me to sin. Our sin entices others to sin. It multiplies. It's a snowball effect. And even if someone isn't guilty of a particular sin, they may be guilty of giving their approval of somebody else's sin. And Paul lumps them together and say it's the one and the same. Approving sin is the same thing as doing sin as, as, far, as, as far as God's judgment is concerned. Approval can be as simple as being silent in the face of sin or as overt as celebrating it openly. But either one is, is approval. Sin can be enshrined nationally into law. It can become a matter of government policy. It can even be assumed to be a national identity. We've seen that happen in our country, right? I think it's what's happening here. We're openly affirming and celebrating sin, and in doing so, we are inviting the judgment of God. But since we have the hope of the gospel, it's not a foregone conclusion, right? This is, we're speaking as Christians who know the gospel, as a, as a church that is within a, a, a nation where we are able to worship freely and to, and to obey Christ. And so it's not a foregone conclusion. We can repent and turn to Christ. And that's what I'm saying. We need to pray that, to do ourselves and pray that our nation will do corporately. Repentance happens in concentric circles. And it starts with you. National repentance, corporate repentance starts with you. Your family from there. Our church from there. And then more broadly in our society. But repentance starts with you, in your own heart, before God, confessing your sin and asking God to forgive you. As Christians, we don't need to fear bringing sin into the light, because the light is where sin must go to be forgiven. We have to acknowledge it so that Christ will forgive it. What I'm saying is this, deal with your stuff. Deal with your stuff. Deal with your sin. Deal with your anger. Deal with your gossip. Deal with your dishonesty. Deal with your greed. Deal with your laziness. Deal with your failure to lead your families. 
Deal with your self-righteous pride. Deal with your envy. Deal with your abusive words and your abusive actions. Deal with your unforgiveness. Deal with your petty, entitled victim mentality. Deal with your discontentment. Deal with your lust. Deal with your porn problem. Deal with the affair that you haven't confessed yet. Deal with your sin. We can't look out into the world and say, my goodness, how terrible things are when we have harbored sin and unrighteousness in our own hearts. It begins with ourselves and it works outward from there. If we don't deal with our own sin and the approval that we give for the sin around us, we're in trouble. I had to do this last Sunday. Um, I was, I'd planned on doing this, but uh, Wade's sermon last Sunday convicted me all the more heavily that I have not been vigilant in the leading of my family. I've just kind of let things go. I've just sort of, we've, I've just let us become lazy. And I, my, last Sunday afternoon, I sat my family down. I'm like, guys, I've let you down. I've, I have not been vigilant to lead our family. And repentance starts with me. And I'm going to step it up. I'm going, I want us to be more regular in our family worship time. I want us to be more faithful in the way that we approach church, the way we come to church together, the way that we spend our time. We're too, we, we care about entertainment too much. There are, there are things that we have to deal with in our household, and, I, and that's on me. That was, that's on me. And I had to repent to them of being too lazy in the leadership of my family. So I can't correct others without first dealing with my own sin. But just as sin is contagious, repentance, forgiveness, and renewal is also contagious, right? Holiness and prayerfulness inspires others. Great acts of courage inspires other people. Godliness inspires godliness in other people. When you see other people paying a price and persevering through difficult times for their Christian testimony and for their Christian walk, that inspires other people. It can also be contagious. We see precedent in church history and in the scriptures of massive quantities of large groups of people who humble themselves before God. They repent. They ask God to forgive them and to to heal them. We've seen this in the first great awakening and in the second great awakening and in the layman's prayer revival. A small spark can ignite a great flame. About 30 some years ago, Campus Crusade, I was on staff with crew, and there was a conference, a national conference, and the speaker uh, called people to repentance and humility and explicitly defined pride and called people out for a spirit of pride within the organization. And such a powerful move of God erupted at that conference, they canceled the rest of the conference. They opened up the microphone in the middle of the stage, and one after one, different people came up and they confessed deep sin that they had not dealt with. And these are ministry leaders. But God used that moment to trigger something within them and call them to repentance and humility, and God blessed that. In our nation, a measure of discipline can awaken our conscience, awaken the conscience of the church. And prompt us to pray. Because essentially, discipline is a foreshadowing of judgment. It's like a spoonful of judgment that can give you a taste of what the full measure is like. And so, at the very least, I think we're experiencing God's discipline. And would it be that God would would encourage us 
to see the sin that we've approved of and that we've committed, and we would repent of it. Corporately, personally, in our families, in our churches, everywhere, we would repent of it and turn to God and say, God, we have wronged you. We have sinned against you. Will you forgive us? May God awaken us from our slumber and motivate us to take action. Church, we can pray for this. We can do it ourselves in our own repentance, and we can pray for this. Pray that we would receive God's discipline and that we would repent and return to Christ. Pray for our president and vice president. Pray for our U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate. Pray for the Supreme Court. Pray for governor of Kentucky, Ohio, whatever state you live in. Pray for state representatives in the House and state Senate. Pray for mayor and city council. 1 Timothy 2 tells us to pray for leaders, kings and authorities, people in high places. Pray and ask God to grant us repentance. Second application point. Taking this straight out of verse 9. Very simply, do not be terrified. Jesus is telling them scary things, right? That are about to take place. But think about this. Jesus knew it was going to happen. Earthquakes, persecutions, famines, armies, wars, destruction of an entire city. And his foreknowledge of those events indicate his sovereign power because he holds all time and history in the palm of his hand. He knows what's going to happen. He knew just how devastating it would be, and when it actually happened, they were able to recall his prediction and his reassuring words, admonishing them to not be terrified. Do not be terrified. If God be for us, who can stand against us? We have nothing to fear, right? Now, in some corners of the internet, there's this thing being talked about called being black-pilled. Some of you may not have heard of that. I asked Laura this morning. She had never heard of it. If you've not heard of it, you're not missing out on anything. But some people talk about this, and it's a real phenomenon. Being black-pilled, pilled, uh, it refers to the way you see the world. And being black-pilled is like you swallow a black pill, and it gives you this nihilistic, hopeless, godless outlook on the world. It's a faithless mentality that all is lost. Let it just lie down and let it all rot. And black-pilled people increasingly take on an attitude that attempting change in the status quo is futile and hopeless. Why bother with it? We can't do anything. And that will always be a temptation during times of distress and cultural chaos. But, as we've already said, God is sovereign over the distress. God is sovereign over the chaos. The chaos is not chaos to God. The cultural chaos of our moment is either God's instrument of discipline or his sword of judgment, but it's not random. It's not outside of his control. Most certainly, it is not random. It will go no further, not one inch further than God allows. God is completely in control of precisely what happens, and it will accomplish precisely the purpose that he has assigned to it for his glory and for our good. So Christians, you need to hear this. The black pill is not an option for us. Our hope must be firmly fixed on Christ. If you look at the state of the world and you're terrified, repent. 
Being terrified is not an option. Jesus told them no less than he would tell us because their destruction was worse than what we face. Do not be terrified. You're not going to be very useful to God in the days ahead if you're cowering in fear, acting as though God has lost control. In Matthew's version of this same text, Jesus said, in those days, people are going to fall away, betray and hate one another, and because of these things, the love of many will grow cold. That's what terror will do to your soul. When you're constantly afraid, constantly hand-wringing about the state of the world, you can't handle cognitively, psychologically that pressure. You're going to give in. Your love will grow cold. You'll harden yourself. You'll protect yourself. And you're not going to last very long in that heightened state of anxiety. A lot of people betray the Lord because they can't handle the pressure. They weren't prepared for it. That's not us. Right? Amen? Is that not us? That is not us. Because God has called us as Christians to be hopeful, prayerful, confident, courageous soldiers in the kingdom. That's who we are. So let's take care of business in our lives. Get right with God. Let's repent of our sin. Let's clean our own house. Let's see what we need to deal with. Walk in obedience and pray that God would be merciful to us. Awaken us in our church, awaken the church in our city and in our nation and churches around the world from our slumber, that we would confess and repent and that we would receive forgiveness and healing and that God would ignite in our hearts and our families and our cities and that that flame of God would spread to every man, woman, and child in our nation and in our world. Amen? Let's pray for that now. Our Lord God, we worship you and we give you all praise. We thank you that you are sovereign and that you are in control. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you told us in the midst of incredibly scary things, you told your people, do not be terrified. I am confident that your message to us would be the same. Lord, help us to not be scared, to not be given to anxiety and fear. Lord, that doesn't mean there's not scary things happening, but we know who holds the world in the palm of his hands, and he is powerful, he's in control, and he is going to win, and you are that God I'm speaking of. Praise your name, Jesus. Help us, God. Strengthen us for the work in the days ahead. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.